Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Jack Reed, to discuss the role of Congress in decision-making on U.S. national security policy in the Asia-Pacific. In their discussion, they look at strategic competition with China and the importance of working with allies and partners in the region, as well as highlight the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, a bipartisan initiative in this year's National Defense Authorization Act introduced by Senator Reed. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green from CSIS and Georgetown University. We're going to continue looking at strategic, geopolitical, uh, military developments in the Indo-Pacific with Senator Jack Reed, the ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, an Army veteran. And we'll talk about congressional views on security issues in Asia, on the National Defense Authorization Act, and especially its new focus in the last round on uh, the Asia-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific, with the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. We'll get into that. How do we handle decoupling with China? What do we want from our allies? How do we assess the threat in the region? But we always like to open by hearing a bit uh, about how our guests uh, got here and, and got interested in the topics we're talking about. So welcome, Senator Reid, and thanks for joining us. And why don't we open up, you know, you were a, you're a West Point grad, uh, you're in the Senate from Rhode Island, and you're uh, working Asia-Pacific issues, among other. How'd you get here? Well, I'm of the generation where most of our fathers were World War II veterans. My dad was a machinist mate in the Pacific in World War II, uh, came back, never talked about it, but you know he served and he uh, valued his service. So from a very early age, I was conscious of the fact that I would probably be serving. And I got interested in West Point from reading and just, uh, in fact, when I was a, a kid, there was a TV show, uh, half an hour TV show about West Point. So maybe that helped too. But I decided about 13 or 14, I wanted to go and my parents helped me and I worked hard, get an appointment uh, from Senator Pastore and got to West Point, found it challenging. After four years, got my commission. Uh, I was lucky enough to go up to Harvard to the Kennedy School for two years. Then after that, I was a, a paratrooper company commander and a ranger qualified officer down at Fort Bragg with the 82nd, commanded a company, back to West Point to teach for a while. And, and then I got lucky enough to get into Harvard Law School, finished Harvard Law School, and then went off to uh, D.C. briefly, but then back to Rhode Island for politics. I had the Xi'an to see if I could add, do something in politics and got elected state Senate and then the Congress and then the Senate and uh, still still trying to do my job. And your Navy dad never held it against you that you went into the Army? Uh, no, no. Uh, my brother was a Marine. If we had good vision and another son, we would have had an Air Force pilot, too, I guess. That's a very blue or very purple, I should say, very purple family. When you were in the Army, did you deploy ever in the Pacific or was it primarily um, Europe focused? Really, the focus was uh, worldwide. We were Fort Bragg. We were the national ready force, but I never essentially deployed out of Fort Bragg other than training missions to uh, U.S. sites, the Fort Drum, New York, uh, uh, out in Fort Bliss, Texas, uh, training jumps and things like that. So I spent my command time at Fort Bragg. And this is in the, what, the 1970s, 80s? This is 19, about 1973 to 1976, 77. Yeah, in my uh, last book, which is on the history of strategy in Asia, I opened the Carter era, 
by uh, describing 10 global war games that the Carter administration undertook at the beginning of their term. And of the 10 global war games, all of them were Europe. None of them were Asia. So I'm guessing around that time, as a company grade officer, you were spending a lot of time, like others in the Army, thinking about NATO, thinking about reforger exercises, and not thinking a lot about the Pacific. How did you start, how and when did you start shifting your gaze more to the Pacific? First of all, we were recovering from Vietnam. So we had been thinking about the Pacific for a decade, and we decided that that was very painful. So we were reorienting to uh, the, the land battle, the conflict with a Warsaw Pact nation. And that was a, one of our principal motivations. The first contact with Asia really came when I became a member of the Senate. I had the opportunity uh, three times to travel with the Mansfield Senate to China at a time in, in the mid-90s when China seemed to be moving in a very positive direction in terms of the opening up their economy, opening up their institutions, and got a chance to go all over, went out to the, when they were building the dam in, in the Yangtze River, went out to see that, the, the Great Gorgeous Dam. We went into down into southern China and uh, went up to Manchuria. And, and also I got to the Yalu River. They wouldn't let us into North Korea, but got along the Yalu River. So I had a chance to, to get a, a feel, a little bit of a feel for China. The Mansfield uh, Center is run by my friend Frank Januzian does really incredibly uh, important work connecting not only members of Congress, but staff uh, with their counterparts in the region. And Mike Mansfield, here's a guy who was in the Army and the Navy and the Marine Corps. And then, of course, became one of the most important, maybe the most important senators on Asia in the body you now work in. Absolutely. In fact, when I came back, my first trip, he asked me to come down and just visit with him and fill him in on what I saw. I was very, very uh, honored to be able to ask and uh, one of a, the great gentlemen, and I'll, I'll never forget, his, he's buried at Arlington and his tombstone basically is Michael Mansfield, U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, so he made his choice. Uh, yeah. Um, I got to meet him because I'm a Japan expert. And the gr- highest honor you could get when you met Ambassador Mansfield was for him to make you a cup of instant coffee in his office. Yes. And it was the most horrible coffee you ever drank. I, I did. I drank it. But it was an honor. The other really interesting thing about Mike Mansell, there are many, many interesting things about him. When he was a, a student at the University of Montana, he wrote his thesis on the Korean Peninsula in 1930-something, when nobody was thinking about Korea. And I read it and cited it for my own book. It is an incredibly insightful geopolitical history of the Korean Peninsula by a, you know, a kid from Montana, really remarkable. No, um, he was a, a brilliant man and a gentleman and someone of great dignity and great integrity. You know, looking at the Senate today, it's hard to know who's going to be the next Mike Mansfield, but I do see a lot of members on both sides of the aisle who are like Mansfield in that they are thinking about the Pacific. Younger generation, if you will. Uh, Shats from uh, Hawaii, my uh, buddy Dan Sullivan from Alaska. There's, there, there seems to be maybe some proto-Mike Mansfield starting to come up in the Senate these days on Asia. Well, I think there's a renewed interest in Asia, and, and some of that is a result of since 9-11, we were engaged in counterterrorism in the Middle East, and particularly after the invasion of Iraq, we were just um, tied down there. And so the interest and the attention of all of us, in fact, the particular the president, President Bush, was uh, getting that solved if we could. Uh, and it took our attention away from from Asia. And also at that point, Asia and China particularly looked like it was moving 
in a positive direction. Uh, uh, global economic engagement and a rising middle class looked like it would be the magic formula that would uh, move them away from the depths of uh, Maoism and the Cultural Revolution to a, a more pragmatic and more integrated country in the world. Do you have a short boilerplate description of how we should think about strategic competition with China? The the Trump administration's first national security document uh, in 2017 said we are in strategic competition with China and Russia. For 20 years before that, including national security strategy documents I worked on, we didn't say that. We said we would work together on global issues. We had terrorism. We had climate change. Do you think that's right, that we're in strategic competition? And what's the concept of operations? How, what does victory look like? How do we organize ourselves? Well, I think we are in a strategic competition with uh, China and to a degree Russia, but China is a much more formidable foe because of its economic prowess and because it has put together this uh, authoritarian capitalism, if you will. Uh, they're very ingenious and entrepreneurial. The Soviets weren't that entrepreneurial. That's one of the reasons I think the Soviet Union collapsed. It, the economy just imploded on its own people and they rejected the Soviet Union. But China has been able to uh, grow its economy, to increase its middle class, uh, to be uh, dominant in, in, in many areas uh, internationally. Now with Xi's ascension in 2012, you have uh, someone who's basically declared almost one man rule and also that China is no longer going to be just a or a player. They want to be the leader in, in Asia, if not the world. And they've made it quite clear that they're prepared to be confrontational. Their island constructions in, in the South China Sea, their recent actions in Hong Kong, they're not hiding anything any longer. And I think that's become more and more obvious. Yeah, the old Deng Xiaoping maxim, hide and bide, is behind us, which is an awfully big strategic mistake by the Chinese. They were doing pretty well before they started showing us what their intentions are. I think you're right. I think in terms of what's the strategy, obviously the strategy is to maintain a liberal international order in which uh, rights of uh, passage at sea are respected, the sovereignty of nations are, are respected, uh, that there is a uh, appropriate trade and uh, and of course, you want to deter any type of uh, armed conflict because the consequences could be significant. You know, China is putting together a formidable uh, arsenal in terms of ships and uh, particularly missile systems and uh, uh, doing lots of research. Uh, they're out aggressively researching and also taking information wherever they can find it. So this is becoming a much more perilous uh, proposition in terms of maintaining the international order in the Pacific as well as uh, maintaining the peace. I've testified a few times in front of your committee on China, and, you know, it felt like if you covered your eyes up, you wouldn't know who's a Republican and who's a Democrat. It, it, it seems like this is an area where there's a fairly broad bipartisan consensus about the problem we're looking at. Is that right? I think there is a very broad bipartisan consensus. The uh, Pacific Defense Initiative, which is uh, uh, part of our NDAA this year was a product of a collaboration between Chairman Inhofe and myself, a, a very, very thorough and, and, and friendly collaboration because we both recognize, and not just us, you mentioned several other of my colleagues on the committee who are quite astute, in fact, very astute about Asia, and this recognition is there. Maybe this is a good time to hear a bit more about the PDI 
what are the lines of effort? Is it a change? I think there was a recognition by both sides that we had not focused sufficiently on the Pacific. We had not a coherent plan. We, we understood uh, an emerging threat, but we didn't understand very well the strategy to confront it. And so basically we decided to try to raise up the profile uh, and concentrate on several things. First, increasing the lethality of our forces in the Pacific because we're seeing a much more lethal uh, opposition, particularly in China. And then enhance the design and posture of our forces so that we're, we're better deployed, we're better communicating, we're better integrated. It's not the service by service. You know, the Navy does their thing, the Air Force does their thing. We want that integration. And then we have to strengthen our alliances and partnerships. Uh, we cannot do this alone by a long shot. We need the collaboration and cooperation of traditional allies like Australia and Japan. Uh, we need uh, emerging nations. We need uh, a major effort to bring us all together. And then finally, we have to get demonstration, experimentation, and innovation, because you're not going to learn how to get the job done unless you go out and try to do it in practice. That's that's one of the key aspects, I think, that, that ties this all together. We're not just going to you know, sort of talk about it, et cetera. We're going to actually go out there and practice this and make the mistakes in practice, not when the, the, the flag comes down. Then there's another area, too, about the defense initiative, uh, we've asked the Department of Defense to identify all the significant funding that's going to the Pacific in one place. It's scattered all over, as you can imagine. And when you get it in one place, now we'll be able to t take a look and say, well, what's really going into the Pacific? So those are the features, the most prominent features of the Pacific Defense Initiative. And I, I think it's been embraced enthusiastically by the Department of Defense. And again, it has got strong bipartisan support. One of the Tough questions about forward posture and capabilities and how we spend resources in the Pacific is what to do about ground forces. And, you know, we have a forward presence with the Army in Korea and the Marines in Okinawa that's basically a residual World War II and Korean War presence in some ways. And, you know, General Berger at the Marine Corps is thinking in, in new ways about the Marine Corps' role in high-end war fighting in the Western Pacific. And the Chief of Staff of the Army is also really working to realign the Army. But it's a, it's a maritime theater. So, you know, in the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, how did you think about the role of the of ground forces of the Army and the Marine Corps? Well, I think the Marine that, Corps and the Army both are talking about uh, getting their forces into the first island chain, dispersing their forces, having them coordinated, uh, multidimensional coordination with the Air Force, with the Navy, with space, arm them with uh, anti-ship missiles, hopefully provide air defense systems that are capable because particularly against some of the new missiles that the Chinese are developing. And what that will do, they believe, and I think it's worth trying to justify or, or examine, is first of all, it'll disperse the, a concentration of forces which are very vulnerable to attack by, by anyone, including the Chinese. Then I think it will provide more areas in which the opponent has to neutralize before they can move into the chain. So that makes the task of the opponent much more complicated. And then again, if we do it correctly and we're, we're sure we have the kind of uh, communication, uh, logistical support, which might require redundancy in the theater, that's one area too of the Pacific Defense Initiative looking at logistics. 
Uh, that, I think, is, is going to be seriously tested in terms of operational wargaming, um, not just tabletops, but in the field, too. And just to see how we can maximize uh, this new dispersed effort of land forces in the Pacific. So a critical part of our strategic success when we've had it in the Pacific has been because of our alliances. And the American people get it. We at CSIS just finished a survey we'll publish uh, soon. And we asked thought leaders and members of the public both on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being highest, how much risk should we be prepared to take to defend our allies, Japan, Korea, Australia, but also uh, Taiwan, which is not a treaty ally. And the mean average across all these surveys was close to nine, meaning very strong support in the American public, and I'm sure in the Congress, for defending allies. But, you know, our alliances are undergoing changes. Uh, President Trump's demanding very, very large increases in host nation support from Japan, SMA from Korea, paying for our bases. Allies have to make decisions about capabilities and so forth. How do allies fit in the PDI? And what's kind of, where do we want to be 5, 10, 15 years from now with our allies? Allies are critical in... uh the PDI. And I I concur. I think the president's approach to try to do a transactional relationship with allies, you know, pay me more, as much as I can get out of you is the wrong approach. They have to bear a burden. Uh, they do. And it, it might require additional, but it has to be done in a cooperative, collegial way and not by demanding. We still don't have a agreement with the South Koreans and we're halfway through the year or more. So that's not the way to approach it. I think what we want to do is bring our allies closer to us, uh, work with them. Uh, I think, again, uh, CSIS has done some interesting work about trying to organize uh, what ultimately might be a joint headquarters with some of our key allies. That's very good work. But we certainly want to get them predisposed to be with us, not only their political leadership, but their people. We want them committed to the same sort of ideals we have, which is uh, this liberal order in the Pacific area. And that, I think, is not done by by bluster and by anything other than constant appropriate diplomacy and cooperation. As I said, and and, and as CSIS has suggested, one effort would be developing this kind of combined joint headquarters. It, it, it would be a long way off. It would have to overcome some, obviously, probably political opposition within certain countries. But I think moving to, to something where we are, are truly united and functioning effectively would be a very good deterrent. And that's what we have to look for. Well, thanks, Senator, for highlighting our, our proposals on this. Easier for us to say somebody else has to do it. You know, we looked at options. You're not going to create a NATO in Asia right? Too many different kinds of threat perception, uh, views of China. We probably need a better joint and combined command relationship of some kind with Japan than we've had. We could probably do some kind of joint standing naval task force that would be inclusive of a lot of other countries. When we went and asked the Marine Command, the uh, Indo-PACOM, U.S. Forces Korea, U.S. Forces Japan, when we went around to the commands in Asia and said, which one of these would be the best? They all said, us being in charge. So I, I think this is going to probably be something the Congress or the next administration, whoever it is, has to tackle. But I think the approach you, you started with, you start with kind of a, a nucleus, a, a experimental nucleus. And then we have traditional allies like the Japanese and the Australians that are logical candidates to be part of this, this effort. And then you start expanding it out. 
And you do it keyed to exercises so that there's practical experience about how do you integrate forces? How do you talk to each other? I mean, the Australians, the United States, even we have problems talking to each other. Uh, but, you know, that the, the language issue, and you want to sort these issues out now before you get into a real crisis situation and you're trying to do it on the fly. And so I think it, it makes a great deal of sense what you're proposing. I'm wondering in the PDI discussions, if the committee or if you and your staff gave thought to what kind of capabilities our allies should have. I remember a few years ago, a senior Australian defense official came to see me before going to the administration. And he said he was going to ask the administration what requirements, what capabilities Australia should have. And he said, I don't think they have an answer. And I said, what if they do? And he said, well, I'll tell them to mind their own business. <laughs> but I'd still feel better if Washington knew what they wanted out of us. And I'm wondering if this came up much in discussions. What for example, there's a lot of discussion. Australia has just stepped up to more surface-to-surface missiles and strike capability. The Koreans are doing that. The Japanese now are debating some kind of strike capability. Is that the right direction? What kind of capacity capability we want our allies to have for their I think, part? I think strike capability is important. I mean, we've seen both China and North Korea have uh, demonstrated the ability to, to launch strikes that would cover a large part of the the Pacific, if not even the continental United States. So the ability to have a capability to preemptively strike could be a deterrent. And again, we, we first search for deterrence. That's what we want to do. And I think what we'd like to be able to do, and this goes to kind of more of the sort of redesigning our, our presence there, is coordinate, not dictate what you're having. But if the Australians have a particular weapon system that is very effective doing a particular task, we might not need it if we can practice with them and work with them and coordinate closely with them. The same goes with our other allies out there. And one of the key factors I would say is, first, we've got to have a much better command and control system. I think that the ability to communicate, to get intelligence, secured intelligence to our partners to share it with us, so that everyone has the same or a good picture of the battle space. I think that's critical too. And more and more is going to be determined in space. Uh, again, you know, 20 years ago, space was a rather neutral place. Now it is a hostile area, potentially. And so we have to be think about that. All of the, the, the cyber developments have to be integrated. So uh, it's, I think, less and less, uh, not completely, but less and less the, the sophisticated platforms and more and more the coordination, the integration, the intelligence, and the ability to operate in cyberspace. You're describing what John Hamry calls federated defense sometimes. It's not a NATO-type collective defense, but it's defense capabilities across our alliances that can talk to each other, that specialize where they're best, and so forth. And back to your earlier point about transactional debates about cost-sharing for bases, that's a complete sucking of the air out of the room when you need it to deal with these complexities that you're describing. Has the committee focused much? Is India part of this? Or how do you think about India, which is, of course, not a treaty ally, but an important player? India is an increasingly important player. I mean, one thing it is a, a democracy, and it, it has those democratic values that it's maintained for many, many, many years. It is a growing economic power, obviously, and it's a growing military power. And we have to be able to cooperate uh, with India. It would be nice to bring them into this 
uh, emerging sort of constellation of democracies that are working for stability and peace in the Pacific. And I think we should and we can do that. I think that requires uh, training with them, uh, operating with them, getting them involved in as many exercises as possible, thinking about equipment that we might sell to them. We have a residual issue with their non-aligned days and their when they were buying a lot from the Soviet Union and they still buy things from Russia, which causes problems. But I think we can overcome that. I think the issue, though, is it's an important democratic power in a place where there's not that many democratic powers. Switching back to China a bit, I've been struck how much your committee is focusing on what might be considered economic issues and especially securing supply chains, which is complicated now because so much of military technology is civilian technology. You know, is it possible to have clean supply chains for the Department of Defense without killing innovation in the non-defense part of the economy? Have you, have you guys found the magic sauce for that? Well, no, but I think one of the key steps, and we continue to not take it, even though I've been urging it for several years now, is that we should find out who owns all these companies. The Securities and Exchange Commission, this is on my other hat, the Banking Committee, uh, could, by rule, require beneficial ownership of all listed companies, at least, and maybe even further than that, so that we know that this company in some place in the Midwest is actually a, a subsidiary, indirect subsidiary of a Chinese company, and they have access to information, et cetera. That's one of the first steps I think we should take. We've tried to do that in the traditional defense chain, you know, defense contractors, to make sure that that's the case. But I think the problem really doesn't come there. It comes more in some of these smaller research companies and some of these uh, Silicon Valley companies or, or 128 companies around Boston where, you know, they can be controlled uh, and influenced by China. So finding out who owns what is the first step. And then making sure and trying to preserve a access to critical equipment. That might require not just doing research and development by the government. It might require you know, providing support to companies so that they can actually produce the quantities too. One of the things we discovered in COVID was a lot of the, the PPE, the protective equipment, was made in China. And we were, you know, you know beside ourselves. We discovered lots of things that were, were made in China. And I, again, I think we have to be conscious of it and we have to make judgments. We can't isolate ourselves from the world economy, but we have to make conscious decisions about what's dangerous and what's not dangerous. So last question, Senator. People who've listened to this podcast have heard um, members from both sides of the aisle talk about these issues and I think would conclude that there is a lot of bipartisan consensus about this problem set. But let me ask you anyway, and not to jinx you, but if the Democrats do take the Senate or if the White House changes, but especially in the Senate, do you think there'll be some different emphasis or prioritization in defense policy or Asia strategy? I don't think there'll be uh, a significant change because everything we've done so far in the Pacific Defense Initiative has been bipartisan. Chairman Inhofe and I were very much involved collectively and cooperatively in drafting it. Our colleagues in the committee share the the view. So I think uh, we'll see a situation where the aspect of China is consistent and continues. Uh, I think what you'll see, uh, and this probably more so if there's a change in administration and Vice President Biden's elected, you'll see a much more aggressive 
diplomatic effort. You also see a diplomatic effort that's not as transactional and as, you know, pay me more, I want it now. You'll see trying to deal with some of these very complex issues of coordination, cooperation, collaboration, and that'll be encouraged, I think, by the Senate, very much encouraged by the Democratic Senate. And where does the Pacific Deterrence Initiative go? It has to go from authorization to appropriation to implementation. What are the next steps people should be looking for in that part of the NDAA? Well, the Pacific Defense Initiative is strongly supported on our side. We have to go to conference. Time is running out. We have about a week and a half or so, and, and we have to get the continuing resolution done, et cetera. So I don't know if we can do a conference. In fact, I, it's doubtful before the election. So we'll come back and do that. I think there'll be strong support on both sides from what I've heard from my colleagues in the House. And then the appropriations process, uh, I think, again, there is a recognition by the appropriators. I serve on the Defense Appropriation Committee. There's a, a, a recognition that China is very, very much a the, you know, the emerging threat. And, and you know, episodes like last week, the, the gunfire along the border with India, the situation in Hong Kong, we're reminded on a regular basis that this is not a, you know, this is not 20 years ago when they were hiding their plans. Well, I think a lot of people are going to be watching and wishing you luck. Well, thank initiative. you. And thank you, Senator. I, I, it's a good thing for the country. Your Navy dad let you go to West Point and that the good people of Rhode Island let you go to the U.S. Senate. And terrific for everybody who listens to this podcast. You could join us today. Thanks. Thanks very much. for Thank you, Mike. Take care. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.